I invite you to rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And the Pharisees went to plot how they would entangle Jesus in his words. So they sent their disciples and some Herodians to him saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you teach the word of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion because you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing the malice in their hearts, said to them, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said, whose image, likeness, and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words, and that these words not only had power in the day that Matthew wrote them, but they have power this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, that we may truly hear, read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, and be changed more and more to be like Christ for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Are you living your authentic life? The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that we're living in the age of authenticity, where, in the words of Oprah, your real job on earth is to become more of who you really are, to live what feels like the real you. Anything less is a faked life. And so we search for our authentic life. We experiment. We remake ourselves, redefine ourselves. We follow every rabbit trail and suggestion. We keep updating our social media profile and then we repeat. And it's exhausting. It's not the euphoria that's promised. It creates in us anxiety as we continually seek for this authentic life rather than feeling actualized because we're approaching it all wrong and we always have approached it the wrong way. Humanity has always approached this ageless quest for the authentic life the wrong way. We grasp, we invent, we redefine, but we don't render. We don't render. Verse 21 here of Matthew 22, Jesus says, render 
to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And I'd argue this is not Jesus giving us some detailed theology of church and states or the sacred secular divide. Instead, Jesus is telling us that the only way to find our authentic life is to render it, render it back to God. See, Jesus is telling us, if you turn with me here to Matthew 22, beginning at verse 15, that our authentic life is the life that God imprints on us, imprints on us in our very creation. There is a thing called the authentic life, and it's been imprinted by God on you already in creation. And not only is this authentic life been imprinted on you, it's also been incarnated before you. We've seen this truly authentic human life lived out in the person of Jesus. He's put it on display for us. Here is the authentic life. But not only is this authentic life that we all desperately desire been imprinted on us in creation and incarnated before us in Jesus, but Jesus today invites you and me back to that authentic life, invites us afresh back to the life we're meant to live. See, first, our authentic life is the life that God imprints on us. He imprints it on us in creation. Look at verse 15. The context of this story is the Pharisees are trying to entangle Jesus. They're getting ready to find a cause to put him to death. They want to set a trap for him. And they send the Herodians along with the Pharisees to make the trap work. Because as we'll discover, the Pharisees are the religious leaders and the Herodians are Herod's political party. So you've basically got a bunch of church leaders and lobbyists together going to Jesus with this question. And here's the trap they're setting. Verse 17, is it lawful? According to Jewish law, is it lawful to pay your taxes to Caesar or not? And it it seems like it's a perfect trap. It's unanswerable publicly. Jesus and the whole crowd know that when Jesus was a child, as we're told in Acts chapter five, there was a guy named Judas the Galilean who arose in rebellion against Roman taxation. He rose up against these occupying foreign pagans. He was seen as a Messiah. People followed him. Rome crushed the rebellion and crucified Judas and all his disciples. It was very much in the face of Jesus and all his contemporaries. You can't answer a question about taxation publicly because here's the trap. If Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, well, the Herodians, the lobbyists will arrest him on the scene. But if on the other hand, he says, yeah, go pay your taxes, this overtaxed crowd will equally attack and mob him. 
The Pharisees and the Herodians think they finally caught Jesus, but it turns out that when you try to entangle Jesus, you end up getting entangled in your own trap. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, show me the coin for the tax. Who's, and they brought him a denarius, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they said, Caesar's. You see, this language of likeness and inscription is part of the reason that this taxation was, and this coin was so hated by the Jews. You see, in Jewish law, Jews were told they cannot have graven images. It's right in the Ten Commandments. But here on this coin, you've got the face of Caesar imprinted, his likeness, along with an inscription that reads, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. This is the most pagan thing you could hold in your hand in a Jewish mindset. And here's the amazing thing. Rome actually made provision for the Jews, for the Jewish subjects. They knew how much they hated this image coin, and so they provided non-faced, non-inscribed, non-stamped copper coins for the Jews to use to pay their taxes. They said, we want to get the taxes one way or another, so we'll give you a special coin without a graven image. Here is the irony. It's a Jewish crowd. Jesus says, show me the coin that you're trying to trap me with, and someone says, oh, here's a denarius. Which God-fearing Jew in the crowd had the denarius on their person? No wonder he calls them hypocrites. You're trying to trap me in something that you're carrying right on your own persons. But let's be clear. It's not just the hypocrisy of them carrying pagan coins, idolatrous coins that Jesus is calling them hypocrites about. The hypocrisy is they have pagan hearts. They're carrying idolatrous hearts within them because they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they are. And that's why Jesus used that word likeness, whose likeness is on it. They couldn't hear that word, that loaded word in scripture and not immediately think right back to the beginning of the biblical story. In the Greek here, it's the word icon, likeness, icon, image. But here's what's amazing. In the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, icon is the word that is used in Genesis chapter one, right at the beginning of the story. God says, let us make man in our own icon our own image. And so God made them in his own icon, image. Male and female, he created them. Jesus pulls this loaded term likeness before them for a reason, to point them to the true problem that they're facing in their lives. Caesar has imprinted his icon, his likeness on these coins. Therefore, that's clearly Caesar's coin. But God has imprinted his icon on you, his image on you in creation. Therefore, you are his. And that's what they have fundamentally forgotten. Now, let me be clear about the coins being Caesar's. Haggai 2 verse 8 does remind us that everything is the Lord's. The silver is mine and the Lord says, and the gold says the Lord. So it's all his. But for Jesus' teaching purposes, he's contrasting this icon What bears the icon 
is bearing the owner's stamp. The coin has Caesar's image. It's Caesar's. We, humanity, have God's image. Therefore, we are God's. That's why St. Augustine, looking at this passage, says that as human beings, we are Christ's currency. We are Christ's currency. His image is on these coins, our lives. It's interesting that in the Old Testament or in the ancient Near East, that the idea of image bearing was bound up with what it meant to be king and to be a people conquered. Images, icons of the king were erected, built in lands that the king oversaw. As the king would go into a region and overthrow it with his armies, he'd build statues of himself, icons of himself. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in that image from Daniel. And the reason for those icons was to remind the inhabitants of that land who the king is. Don't forget who the king is. There's an icon, there's an image right here to remind you of who the king is. I've probably been reading far too much Narnia and Tolkien But the truth of the matter when you think of it is if, to put it this way, if the trees could speak, they would walk out to you and every other human being and say, you look like the king. You remind me of the true high king. That is what it means to bear the image of God, to bear his character, his attributes, his rule within his creation, to function in a way living his kind of life in creation that the world will know that we have a king who is in heaven. And it's been imprinted on us even before we were born. That image imprinted on every human being. This week, Seth, who's our student minister here at Christ Church, who's a curate for us, and his wife, Shannon, went into emergency childbirth. They've been pregnant and they delivered their new baby, Emma, at 25 weeks. She's tiny. And she and Seth and Shannon need our prayers and they will be in the NICU for some time. But here's the amazing thing, looking at the photograph that Seth shared with me of little baby Emma, tiny, 25 week old, is that that image of that child, that child, Emma, has dignity and has worth, not just because she is cute and wanted and loved, but that child, Emma, Like every child, every human being has dignity because she's made in the image of God. I tell my non-believing friends of other worldviews, I always say, I don't know how you come up with your worldview of human dignity. I said, as Christians, I know where ours comes from. We believe that every human being is made in the image of God. Immense worth and value. In the words of Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made before we were born. 
dignity in every human life imprinted on us. Our authentic life is already imprinted on us. But the authentic life we desire has not just been imprinted on us, it's been incarnated before us so we can see it. It's been put on display in action for us. I love how verse 16, they're buttering Jesus up, they say, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the word of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinions for you're not swayed by appearances. They're buttering them up, but they're also stating a fact about what they see in Jesus. Do you hear that even Jesus' enemy is going to trap him see a fundamentally different life. They look at him, even his enemies, in awe and say, what kind of man is this? This man lives in a different kind of way. He says things, he does things, he lives this authentic, integrated life, unlike anything we've seen before. Even non-believers, as they look upon the story and the life of Jesus, see it. Time magazine says of Jesus, the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. That's a secular magazine. It sounds like a preacher. Even the non-believers look at his life and say, there's something authentic and unique about this man. You see, the concept of image bearing, like we're going to model God's character and life and rule and reign in this world, go off, live into that imprinted image bearing life. The reality is we, we hear that call and have no idea what that looks like. I mean, that's so abstract. What does it possibly mean for me and you to live out this image bearing life before creation? Imaging God? What does it actually look like? When I was a stage actor, one of my favorite things was the fact that I did stage fighting. Stage fighting is fun because you learn how to fake it and make it look real. And especially if you're a Shakespearean actor, like I was near the end, uh, you get to do lots of stage fighting with swords and all the rest. And I remember when I was getting trained for stage fighting, because it is dangerous. I mean, these are blunt weapons, but they're still pokey and people can get seriously injured. And I remember being told by one of my trainers early on that when you're doing the choreography, when you're, you're learning, the, because that's what it is, it's choreography, carefully staged choreography with weapons. It's very cool. Um, and, and the whole idea is if you feel unsafe about something the choreographer is asking you to do, the easy solution is you just say these words, show me. Right, And so I was doing Hamlet just a couple of years before I retired as an actor. And, uh, you know, we had this, this huge open concept set staircase going up, parapet across, staircase going down. And it's Laertes and Hamlet, final fight scene. And the, the choreographer's like, all right, you're going to fight up the stairs. Uh, we got rapier and dagger. You're going to fight across the parapet and then fight halfway down the second stairs. And then he says to Jason, who's playing Hamlet, I then I want you to kick Paul, who's playing Laertes, down the stairs, he's going to roll about six or seven stairs and then sort of roll and sort of hop up and continue the fight scene. It'll be so exciting. And Jason and I are looking at each other and we start walking through it really slowly around. We get to the stairs and I finally turned to the choreographer and said, show me. 
And he got up there and stood and held it and thought, I can see the gears working. He says, uh, I think we're going to try something else for the choreography. <laughs> see, we rightly want to say, how can you possibly ask me to do this? I have no idea, a reference point of what it even looks like. Show me. Image bearer, be an image bearer for God before the world. Show me. And he does. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the son of God, comes among us in the flesh and shows us what this image bearing life looks like. He is the perfect image bearer. In the words of Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You look at Jesus' life and you see the perfect image bearer life. He says, this is the prototype. This is what it looks like. And the truth is when we look at his life, we're immediately struck by, in comparison, his true, pure, full life. In comparison to that life, we see often how false and shallow and inauthentic our lives so often can be. Like C.S. Lewis saying of us that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. That's what Jesus means when he says hypocrites in verse 18. The word literally means actor. You're not really living life, you're just acting. You're pretending. You're faking it. You're totally inauthentic. Words of John chapter 1 give us this incredible news of the incarnation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life with, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his life on display for us, incarnate image bearer. There is the standard. There is the picture that's been imprinted on us, our destiny. At which point we appropriately feel totally inadequate which is why the gospel here is not just that our authentic life is something that God has imprinted on us and we've clearly fallen away from. It's not just a life that Jesus incarnates before us to show us this is the full life that he's called us to for the sake of the world. But our, our authentic life that God imprints on us and incarnates for us, he invites us to now. Jesus is constantly inviting fallen image bearers to come back, to return, to be restored 
as the image bearers we've been called to be. He invites us back, and it's with that word in verse 21, render. Render unto God the things that are God's. The word render is a word we don't use very often. It, it means to literally give back. It means to repay. It means to return. I think, therefore, the best modern equivalent of the sense of the word is actually the word surrender. Just surrender. Stop withholding, stop controlling, stop curating everything, but surrender it back to the one who owns you, who made you, and who's inviting you to live again. You see the power of this word in the fact that verse 22, after Jesus says this saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God what is God's, that they marveled at him, at his words, they, verse 22 says. It's the word astonishment. It's the word that Matthew uses for Jesus' miracles. In Matthew 8, when he calms the sea storm, they are marveled. When he heals the paralytic in Matthew 9, they marveled. When he casts out the demon in Mark 9, Matthew 9, they marveled. And now at his words, they marvel. But they don't just marvel. Notice verse 22 says, they marveled and they left him and went away. They leave. They're shaken by his words. They're shaken to the core so much that they walk away because they know in that word render that that's the truth of what's missing in their lives. They know that he's right and they know how difficult it will be to in fact render, surrender their lives. It's no different then as it was today. We live in a culture that says you need to find your own authentic self and, and be clear, never conform to another's life. You must find your own life. Never conform to another's life. But isn't it true that it's the very otherness of Jesus' life? It's the very foreignness of Jesus' life. It's the very uniqueness of Jesus' life that makes his life good news. I don't need more of the life that I've attempted to fill and curate and redefine and control. I need another kind of life. In the words of Corey Tenboom, look at the world looking for that authentic life. Look at the world and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. If you're tired of trying to control your life, if you're tired of trying to curate your image, Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn my life. Live my image bearing life in this world. It's been imprinted on you and I invite you back to it. And just to be clear, be encouraged that in this story, he's inviting Pharisees and Herodians to this. The invitation is given to his enemies, to people very broken, very inauthentic, full of sin and contempt. And to them, even to them, even to us, 
in grace, he says, render. I notice where he's doing it. He does this in the vicinity of the temple. This is Matthew 22. It's his last week on earth. Everything is pointing to Calvary. Everything he says and does is pointing to Calvary. He calls us to render. He invites us to come back to the life he's called us to live. And he says, I know exactly the cost. I know exactly how difficult it will be for you. I know exactly the burden before you. I know exactly how impossible it is for you to do this yourself. This is not a to-do list. This is not a checklist. Oh, I need to be more like Jesus tomorrow. Write that every day on the journal this week. That ain't gonna do it. An inner, deeper work must be done as he dies for us on the cross. In the words of Colossians chapter 1 again, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, enemies of God, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We rehearse this rendering, this gospel rendering each week, hearing that invitation and, and coming, saying, yes, again, Lord, I'm going to surrender my life to you. And I can't do it on, on my own. I need your gospel. I need your cross, your death and resurrection. We rehearse this rendering act every week as we come to the table. Because we come hearing the gospel of his gracious salvation for us fallen image bearers coming to restore us to our image. And then says, come, put out your hands and let me feed you with my own life. Let me do for you what you cannot ever do for yourself. Are you living your authentic life? Jesus says our authentic life is the life that God imprints on us in creation. Every human being, image bearer, that's the authentic life. That, that authentic life, he's incarnated before us. He's shown us what it looks like. And he invites us to render, to surrender, to give ourselves back over to God and do the work that is needful in us to live that life again. And let's be clear, let's be clear. rendering is not a one-time act. It's the heartbeat of a disciple constantly rendering, surrendering to God. And it surprises us sometimes when it comes into our lives. It may be surprising some of you this morning I remember in 2015, I was, I love to tell the story. I was sitting at a monastery and I had a very controlled, comfortable, curated life. Everything was exactly the way I wanted it. I wanted no interruptions. I certainly wasn't going to invite God to come in and make a change in my life. Everything was just perfectly curated in control. And I was praying and I was humbled and brought to my knees all morning long with this phrase going through my head and I wrote it in my journal and it said, will you still adventure with me? And I called Monica 
who was across the Atlantic Ocean back in Canada. And I said, I want to tell you. And she said, let me tell you first what God has been doing in my heart all morning. She said, I can't get this phrase out of my head. Will you adventure with me? And I picked up my journal and I showed her in big, bold letters I'd written that. And she says, what do you think God is saying to both of us? And I knew exactly what he was saying because a few days earlier, I'd been called by a search team about a church in Texas that was looking for a new rector. And I told the search guy, I'm not interested. And he said, well, could you wait a week and pray about it? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll pray about it for a week. <laughs> Will we spend our lives controlling, curating, or will we spend our lives rendering? And there, find our lives. Render, Jesus says, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God's. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.